there are some who believe that what we might call the gospel marked life. There are some who believe that life is one ultimately defined by an assurance that when you die, you will go to heaven. Ever been in that place or ever met people like that? For them, the gospel marked life is primarily answering the question, where will I go when I die? I will be with God in heaven. That's it, it seems. But is that how the New Testament actually characterizes such a life? The gospel-impacted life. The gospel-marked life. Now, we certainly find passages in the New Testament that speak about the hope of heaven, don't we? We see them there. The Apostle Paul wrote in Philippians chapter 1, verse 21, verse 23, he said, for, for, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. So Paul's life was influenced, it was radically influenced by the reality that he, if he died, he would be in the presence of Christ. That the loss of his life uh, was put into perspective by the reality of eternal life that he had received from God. That's an amazing thing. But the biblical view of how the gospel, the good news about Jesus, how it changes a life is far bigger than simply what happens when that life is over. That is our earthly existence. The good news about Jesus also marks and shapes our lives today in light of today. Do you believe that? It marks and shapes our lives today in light of today. What we might call during life, not just after life, right? The during life, the Word of God speaks to it directly, clearly. If you have embraced, and by that I mean if you have received in faith, your trust is wrapped up in the good news. Gospel just means good news. That gospel, the gospel that we unpacked last Sunday in light of Romans chapters 1 through 4, if you've embraced that, then your life will be deeply impacted. It can't not. That's just how it works. This is the very thing that Paul will go on to explain to the disciples of Jesus in the city of Rome, that church in Rome. He will go on to explain this for them in Romans chapter 5, uh, Romans chapter 5 through chapter 8. So if one through four, he was unpacking this gospel, being clear about this gospel. Now in five through eight, he's going to say, okay, what impact then will this make? How will this change your life in light of today? How you live your life, what will be different because of the good news? Let's think about these chapters this morning. Let's think more about these chapters and dig in a little bit more by pitching our tent in Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. That'll be our base of operations this morning. Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. 
Let's take a look at what Paul has written to these believers living in the city of Rome, the capital of the empire 2,000 years ago. Before we look at these verses, it's important to think about how this passage fits into Paul's unfolding argument or the kind of flow of thought that he has, is revealing here in this letter to the Romans. Last time we talked about how the topic of faith faith or more specifically justification by faith what does that mean it means by faith or by trusting god we obtain a right standing before god right that's what he's explaining with that key word faith really defining chapters one through four remember in chapter one verse 17 this gospel that's the salvation for everyone right the power of god for salvation to everyone who believes Guess what? It's from, from faith and for faith. Even the Old Testament backed that up. Habakkuk 2.4. The righteous shall live by faith. That's chapter 1. And then you get to the end of chapter 4 and he's talking all about Abraham as an example of faith. And how Abraham is our father because of his faith. Our spiritual ancestor. Our spiritual father. Because he believed and that's how he stood before God. Not because he was just some super awesome guy who, who accomplished all the steps, right? Who cleaned his life up and got it together and performed well. No, because he believed and God credited that to his account as righteousness. It meant he had a standing before God. So justification by faith, being right with God through faith in Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? That was chapters one through four. Now, in chapter 5, Paul shifts gears to a new but related theme. Inextricably connected theme, right? These two, these two go together and have to be kept together. And that theme for chapters 5 through 8 is another one, a key word, and that's grace. Faith, grace. Take a look on the screen here in chapter 5, verses 1 and 2. Paul says this as he begins that new section. Therefore, in light of that justification by faith, God's saving by faith. Since we have been justified by faith. What does he say? We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Not we had peace. Not God kind of got us. We were justified by faith. But then don't you screw it up. Right? Don't ruin it. Don't ruin it. No. He says we have peace. We've actually obtained peace. And then he drives it home in the next verse. Through him. Through Jesus we have also obtained access by faith into the grace in which we stand. Whoa. So now this has completely blown away the idea that I can be made right with God, but then I can just screw it up because I'm not good enough. No, 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 no. That faith has actually made us has actually given us a relationship with God. There's peace between me and my maker right? Not only that, but I've also gained access into a place of grace where I will stand. It's where I stand. There's no qualification given to this, right? That's where I'm going to be now in this relationship defined by peace with God. I'm in a place of grace. I stand by God's grace alone. And if it's God's grace alone, not about my performance is it this is a radical idea 
This is a, a, a wonderfully, beautifully radical idea. Grace. So justification by faith has made possible access by faith into this grace in which we stand. We now stand before God in grace because in grace, God the Son stood in our place. What's that called, that message? The gospel. You can stand before God, your maker, your creator, in a peace-defined relationship. You can stand because Christ stood for you. He stood in your place. He went to that cross. But there's something else that we need to understand about this, the context here before we dive into Romans 8, verses 1 through 4. We need to understand this about this first half of Romans, Romans 1 through 8. Though it isn't always talked about, the first half of Paul's letter here to the Roman church is deeply concerned with the Old Testament law. It's deeply concerned with the law of Moses, another way to say it. The law given by God to Moses. Remember the Ten Commandments, the movie, the Prince of Egypt, the animated film. I mean, those are very popular uh, representations of that very thing. The exodus, the deliverance from slavery of the Jewish people, the Hebrew nation. And then they were given those Ten Commandments, which were really just the kind of the representation or summary of 613 commandments that God would go on to give them, covering all sorts of interesting things, how they treated one another, how judgment was rendered in civil cases in their society, how rituals were to be performed to atone for their sins, to mark them off as a separate people, a clean people. There were lessons God was teaching them through all of this. But this letter is deeply concerned with that. Now, when we're thinking about Christians and the Old Testament law, those two things, some may, some may go straight to a book like Galatians. And that would be a really good book to go to because Galatians has a lot to say about Christians and the Old Testament law. But Romans has almost twice as many references to the law of Moses than Galatians. 74 refer- uses of the word law with almost 60 of those being specifically referencing the law of Moses. Why is this though? Why are there so many references to the law of Moses in the book of Romans? Well, because it appears that the Jews who had become Christians, Jewish Christians, they had received Jesus as their Messiah, the long-promised Messiah. It seems that these Jewish Christians in Rome were concerned with the changes that were taking place because now Christ had come and there were Gentiles coming into the church. Non-Jewish people were coming into this community of people. And they were beginning to be concerned that the Old Testament law was being dismissed as irrelevant now. That it was being minimized when in their life beforehand it was always maximized. I mean seriously maximized. The law is what they had. The law got them to God. It was the pathway to God. So for these Jews, if there's neglect of the law within the church by some of these non-Jewish believers and maybe some of the other Jews who felt liberated and they were going to kind of go off and live a new kind of life than they had before, for these Jews who were concerned, undoubtedly neglecting the law of Moses would result in moral confusion in the church. Carelessness, moral carelessness in the church. If we don't have the law, where are the, where are the guardrails? <laughs> Where's the path forward? 
Where's the map that shows us how to walk, how to obey, how to please God? How can we minimize the law? You see, there was confusion in this church about the relationship between the law and grace. Paul anticipated some of their questions. He knew what was going on. He anticipated some of their questions. Take a look at Romans 6. Again, we're just establishing the context to know what's what's Paul unpacking here. How does Romans 8 fit into a larger argument or a stream of thought that Paul is, 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 is revealing here? Romans 6, Paul says this, What shall we say then in light of this liberation, this justification by faith? What shall we say in light of this grace that we're standing in before God? A relationship defined and grounded in grace. What shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? Should we sin more so that God will give us more grace? No, 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 no. <laughs> By no means. Uh, literally in Greek, may it never be. May it never be. How can we who died to sin still live in it? What then, he says in verse 15, are we free, sorry, are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. May it never be. You see, he's directly addressing that concern of those Jewish Christians and saying, no, 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 no. Just because uh, there's a changed relationship with the law of Moses, it doesn't mean that we have this blank check to go live worldly lives. That's not how this works. The unhealthy thinking of some of these Jewish Christians is also evident in chapters 2 and 3 of this letter. Take a look here. In chapter 2, verses 17 through 21, Paul asks some of his readers this revealing question. And this gives us some insight into who the Jewish believers that he's talking to, what they were like. But if you call yourself a Jew, says Paul, and rely on the law, you rely on the law, and you boast in God, and you know His will, and you approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. And if you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? Boy, that sounds a lot like Paul's Savior, our Lord Jesus, who so often in his earthly ministry decried the kind of hypocrisy that he saw among the Jewish leaders and many of the Jews who had turned the law into a formula, who believed that tradition was just as important. Their interpretations would rival what the Word said. They were the only ones who could tell you what it meant. They lived it out according to their standards. Paul is saying, you think you know the law so well, you think you live it so well, and that you should be instructing and guiding and giving advice, right, to others? And yet you're not even keeping it yourself. You're not even obeying it yourself. Paul will go on in that same context there in chapter 2 to address the supposed value of circumcision as well as obedience to the law. Circumcision was, was obedience to the law. But in the next chapter, in chapter 3, verse 9, he asked this important question. Take a look. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. Were there advantages to being Jewish? Absolutely. Paul details some of those at the beginning of chapter 3. 
But in the final accounting of all things, guess what? Jews and non-Jews all stood on level ground before the judgment seat of God. We were all guilty. We're all condemned. No one is any better than anyone else. So clearly Paul is addressing some wrong-headed views about the law and circumcision, views that were leading some of his readers to boast about themselves and look down on others. And you can see hints of that throughout the book of Romans. So one of the things Paul is doing here in Romans chapter 1 through 8 is helping his readers, especially his Jewish Christian readers, understand the truth about the law and faith and grace and righteousness. How all of these things now fit together. How they work together. How they're related now to one another. So with all of that in mind, that was a big lead-in, wasn't it? That was deep, deep lead-in. But now you're prepared to actually hear Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Let's look at that passage together. This is what Paul writes. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the Spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law of Moses, weakened by the flesh, could not do by sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh. And for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh but according to the Spirit. Wow. Again, it's like a dense seven-layer cake, right? Chocolate. It's like, oh man, this is so rich. I gotta slow down. Give me a glass of milk with this. I'm like, you gotta slow. It's so much. There's so much here. But we've prepared our hearts. We've prepared our minds to think a little bit more about this. I hope you notice, given that the extended lead-in to this chapter, I hope you notice that Paul is continuing to talk about the law of Moses here. Did you see that? He's continuing to talk about the law of Moses. He's also talking about two other laws. We could call them axioms. We could call them principles. The first of these principles he calls the law of the spirit of life. That's interesting. What is that? Well, we'll see in just a minute. That's verse 2. The second he calls the law of sin and death. Let's take a look at that in a second. So in thinking about all three of these laws, the law of the spirit of life, the law of sin and death, and the law of Moses, usually used with the definite article, the law, right? The law. When we're thinking about all three of these laws, what I hope that you will see here is how this passage speaks directly to the life that has, through faith, been deeply impacted by the gospel. This is the gospel-marked life that he's describing right here. This is the gospel-marked life. To be more specific, what this passage teaches us is that, take a look, the gospel-marked life is marked by both the emancipating absence of God's condemnation and the empowering presence of God's Spirit. If you're thinking about the Christian life, you can't go wrong starting with those two ideas right there from Romans chapter 1 
Romans chapter 8, verses 1 through 4. Let me repeat it. The gospel-marked life is marked by both the emancipating absence of God's condemnation and the empowering presence of God's Spirit. So let's see how this passage speaks to both of these ideas this morning. In light of verse 1, let's take a look. We might ask this question to begin. Why were we condemned before? It says there's no condemnation. Why were we even condemned in the first place? Well, for his Jewish Christian readers, Paul wants them to understand that they were condemned by the law. <laughs> they were Whatever they thought about their relationship to the law, and you can tell in chapter 7, and this is where I would disagree with some interpreters who say, well, a, an unspiritual, unregenerate person can't say I delight in the law. No, that's not true. There were many Jews who said they delighted in the law. There were many unsaved, unregenerate Jews who said they delighted in the law of God right? That's what we're seeing at the end of chapter 7 is people saying, well, I delight in the law. I agree with the law, right? The law is wonderful. It's like a light to my path, a lamp, you know, lamp to my feet, a light to my path. But they didn't keep the law. They didn't keep the law. There was an inability to actually keep the law. That's what he spells out, that, that tension at the end of chapter 7. This is what we see here. They would be condemned by the law. Remember in chapter 2, take a look on the screen, chapter 2, verses 12 through 13, Paul wrote, all who have sinned under the law will be judged by what? The law. Right? You'll be judged by the law. You have knowledge of the law, you're under the law, you're judged by the law. For it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Just because you go to synagogue and hear the law doesn't mean you're in good with God. You actually have to do the law. Now, if you establish that, that you actually have to do the law to be righteous before God, then you get this this doozy in chapter 3, verse 20. Paul says, if you're seeking justification, that is a right standing before God through your own works, through your own performance, through your own obedience, through your own goodness, your moral uprightness, your moral performance, if you're trying to stand before God because you're a good person and you're working it out, listen to this, chapter 3, verse 20, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes knowledge of sin. I like how he switches to no human being, right? Literally in Greek, no flesh. There's no person that will ever be able to walk up to God and say, God, I deserve to stand in your presence. Why? Because I've done everything just right. I'm a good person. Look at my moral record. Take a look. What do you think? I'm here. No, 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 no. Paul explains this. This idea of through the law comes knowledge of sin. He explains this in Romans chapter 7. Take a look. I've put a, a version of Romans 7 up here. I've taken out a few things just for the sake of efficiency, economy. What then shall we say? Here's Paul again talking to his Jewish Christian readers and saying, I know what you're going to ask. I know what you're, I know what you're worried about. What are we going to say? That the law is sin? No, by no means. Yet, if, I had not, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. 
We're the kind of people, we're basically, if you admit it and agree with God's word, we are default line breakers, boundary breakers. That's what we want to do as sinners. So when God's law comes and says, here's a line that we draw with a commandment, and we go, oh, that's a commandment? Oh, I want to break that. I want to step across that line. You see, it, it, inc- it incites us in a way, not because the law is bad, but because the sin inside of us wants to step across that line, wants to obsess about that line, wants to fixate on breaking that line, because that's what characterizes sinners. That's what Paul is saying here. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it, killed me. Did that which is good then bring death to me? No, by no means. It was sin producing death in me, not the law. It produced death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. What does that mean? It came as the revelation of a holy God. To be sinful beyond measure means you are not just doing something, you are violating the decree of the God who made you. Don't call it a mistake. Call it what it is, a violation of God's holy command. Don't just call it a moral lapse in judgment. Don't just call it a moral failure. It is breaking God's law. That's what this means. Now, does this mean non-Jews like me? I'm guessing most of us. Non-Jews like us. (laughs) Does it mean that we who are without the law are not condemned? No. No, 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 no. Paul wrote in chapter 2, take a look. For all who have sinned without the law, that's us, will also perish without the law. Well, wait a minute. Why is that? For when Gentiles, that's us, who do not have the law of Moses, by nature do what that law requires, and that's usually written down in their own law codes, our own social standards, taboos, you know, right and wrong in our own legislation, it reflects what the law of Moses has, not perfectly, but there's so many points, right? Do not murder, do not steal, do not commit adultery. You can find that all over the world. Cultures all over the world, throughout history, even separated from one another. Why is that the case? Because these, be- these become a law to themselves, even though they do not have the law, the law of Moses. They show that the work of the law is actually written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness And their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. So what's represented in the Jewish law is something that really God has imprinted on every human being. Your conscience is just the arbiter of that knowledge and says, whoa, 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 whoa. You know it's wrong to do that. Or, hey, wait, 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 wait. That person's condemning you, but you know why you did that and you know what you did and you're okay. You didn't do anything wrong. You know that. Your your conscience can affirm you so we are judged because we have the law imprinted on us is what paul is actually saying here the point of all of this is is simply this all of us stand condemned and i hope you grab that grab onto that this morning if there's any doubt in your mind this morning if you're waffling on this if you're not quite seeing things clearly this morning you need to understand 
because you'll never know how good the good news of Jesus is until you understand how bad the bad news about sin is. It just will not work. Jesus is not the cherry on top of your pretty good life so far, right? He's not the cherry on top of the American dream experience for you. He is a savior from sin and the deadly eternal consequences of that sin. So we, has, we have to grab on to this reality of sin as it's being con, uh, revealed for us here. So in chapter 6, Paul describes our pre-grace condition in these terms. We who were once slaves of sin is how he characterizes it. Chapter 6, verse 17. And a few verses later, he is crystal clear about the final outcome of that condition, where that road leads. The wages of sin is a life full of just great experiences and fun and partying and right. The wages of sin is that you get to be in the cool kids club and you get to have the time of your life. And oh, no, 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 no. The wages of sin is death. Right? We've got to be sober minded about this, even though the world is telling us something different about what you're going to get out of sin. Wages of sin is death. That comes straight from the God who created us. Paul summarizes this in Romans chapter 7, verse 5. Take a look. Flip back over to Romans 7, verse 5. This is such a key verse. This is one of the verses he goes on, goes on to unpack in the rest of Romans 7. Paul says, For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law we're at work in our members to bear fruit for death. That's your BC days. That's pre-grace. Brothers and sisters, that destructive relationship between the law of God, the sin dwelling in you, and death as a result is what Paul calls in shorthand the law of sin and death. That's it. The law of sin and death. And that law, just like gravity, is in effect in every single one of our lives without Christ. But there is good news, isn't there? What, what, were we just, what were we just doing? We were looking at condemnation. What does that word mean? Why are we condemned? Well, we just laid it out, didn't we? This is why we're condemned. But there is good news here in Romans chapter 8, verse 1, starting in verse 1. Because of Jesus, we can be set free from that law. We can find ourselves in a place where that law does not apply to us any longer. Can't touch us. Has nothing to do with us. We'll be above that law, out of its reach. We can be emancipated. How? Through Christ Jesus. Look again at eight, chapter 8, verse 3. For God has done what the law Weakened by the flesh, not the law, but the, the sin in us, the flesh, could not do. What did he do? He sent his son in the likeness of sinful flesh. Was Jesus sinful? Is Jesus sinful? No, he's not. But he came in the likeness of sinful flesh. That is, uh, this world so, so in bondage to sin is defined by our reality here in the flesh. He entered into that reality so it would be easy to assume that he also entered into our curse. But he did not. He did not enter into our curse. He came in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin. 
Jesus Christ came into the world to save sinners, Paul said. Right? That's a trustworthy statement. You can take that to the bank. That's why he came. He came for sinners. He came to condemn sin in the flesh. Notice how condemnation has just pivoted here. No condemnation for us. Why? Because Jesus brought the condemnation upon sin when he bore the condemnation upon himself. Jesus, our sinless Savior, condemned sin itself as he was condemned in his own flesh when he died on that cross. Thus, in him, that law no longer applies to us. Is that glorious? If, if we could just get a, a sense, you probably have a little bit of a sense of what that means, but if we could really see that truth in all of its glory and beauty and impact, we would probably fall on the ground and start crying right now. Everything wrong with the world and everything wrong in your life is connected to this idea. Sin, suffering, law, death, judgment. All of it is connected right here. But a new law does now apply to us. The old law doesn't apply to us anymore because of Christ's amazing work. But a new new law does now apply. It's called the law of the spirit of life. This is the law that you want in effect, right? This is the law that you want applying to. You want to live in light of this law. This is a principle that ensures all who have received the Spirit by God's grace through faith will receive new life in Jesus. That's how the principle works. They are set free by the ransom that He paid for them. That's how they're released. He paid a ransom with His own blood. Thus, we are set free from our bondage. But even if the law cannot save us, some might say, especially in Rome, don't we need the law still to guide us for a righteous life? Well, notice how Paul addresses that question here in verse 4. Romans 8, verse 4. Jesus died in our place. Why? In order that the righteous requirement, one word in Greek, one word, It means ordinance. It means precept. It means righteousness. Um, It means... It's a very interesting word. It's translated lots of different ways. But what he's saying is this righteous requirement is pretty good. We could say the ordinance or we could say righteousness in order that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not according to the flesh, not any longer, but according to the Spirit. Here's what Paul's Jewish Christian readers didn't get. They needed to understand how the Spirit of God is now at work within us to produce the very life of holiness to which the law pointed. Do you see? We don't need the law any longer in that sense because the Spirit is at work to produce that life in us. That righteous requirement is being fulfilled in us. Not just fulfilled once. Notice the the connection with walking in the Spirit here. It is being fulfilled in us. That holiness, that life of holiness that God is calling us to. Why did God even give the law to His people when He saved them from Egypt? Because He said that if you're going to be my people now, you're going to live like me. You're going to represent me. Right? If you're going to call yourself by my name, then you're going to live the kind of life that I have laid out for you. I am holy, so you be holy, is what God told them. 
Guess what the Spirit does? He's producing that life of holiness in us. Isn't that wonderful? Think about this. Though all of us once failed under the law and were condemned, everyone who is now under grace actually fulfills the law. What a reversal. Astounding. And it's the Spirit's work within us that Paul will go on to describe in Romans chapter 8 where we find not one, not two, not three, but 19 references to the Spirit of God. One after the next. Spirit, 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 Holy Spirit. No one can argue after they read this that the Holy Spirit is not important for the Christian life. The Holy Spirit is the key to the Christian life. He's producing this life within us. Look at how Paul goes on to explain this in verse 7 of chapter 8. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. That's us, B.C., pre-grace. That's us. It's hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Verse 13, drop down. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. Man, that's what we've been hearing this whole time in Romans. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You will live by the Spirit's. What's helpful is this. What's helpful is that a few chapters later, Paul will talk more about this fulfilling of the law, this fulfilling of the precept, the ordinance. Listen to how he says this. Romans chapter 13, take a look, verses 8 through 10. Owe no one anything except to love each other, for the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor. Therefore, again, love is the fulfilling of the law. Twice he's repeated that. You sense he's trying to emphasize something there? Yeah. His Jewish Christian readers who were so fixated on keeping the law because they were so concerned that there would be moral chaos. He says, don't you know the power of the Holy Spirit to produce in us something amazing? It's no wonder at the end of this letter, chapter 15, verse 30, he says, the apostle appeals to them in this way. I appeal to you by our Lord Jesus Christ and by the love of the Spirit. That's what this is. Does the gospel of Jesus change us? Absolutely. It absolutely changes us. It sets us free for a life of love, a life that is empowered by God, the Holy Spirit. That's how a life changes. Since it is Black History Month this month, I think it is especially fitting to think about the words of Harriet Tubman as she reflected on her own escape from the horrible reality of her earthly slavery she said this when i found i had crossed that line into freedom into the north i looked at my hands to see if i was the same person there was such a glory over everything the sun came like gold through the trees and over the fields and i felt like i was in heaven brothers and sisters in a profound way 
you are not the same person you were. You are not the same person you were. As Harriet Tubman recognized, when you gain your freedom, it radically changes things. You see things differently now. Have you been set free? Have you been set free? What have we seen this morning from God's Word? We've seen this. The gospel-marked life is marked by both the emancipating absence of God's condemnation and the empowering presence of God's Spirit. So I ask you, is your life marked in that way? If it's not marked in that way, then you need to go back and ask, do I really believe the good news? Have I genuinely received and trusted in Christ? It's not I believe in Jesus like, well, I believe in Jesus. Yeah, he's son of God, came for me. A list list of facts that you somehow recite. Like, I believe in Adolf Hitler. No, it's this. I believe in Adolf Hitler. Ooh, if if you heard somebody say it like that, you'd go, oh, whoa, I don't know if I want to hang out with this person necessarily. Because what are they saying? They're talking about a belief that goes beyond just I believe this person existed. It's I believe what this person stood for. That's what saving faith is. I believe that Jesus Christ is Lord and I'm not. I believe he's my only hope. I embrace that, right? I believe that wholeheartedly. That's what it means to truly believe in Christ, to trust. It's not just raising a hand or making a decision or praying a prayer sometime in the past. It is that surrender to the truth. That is that bowing down in repentance remorse for your sin as we've talked about sin here this morning and faith in Christ as your absolutely only hope both in this life and the next life. And when somebody believes that, their life begins to change like we just talked about here. The emancipated absence of God's condemnation, the empowering presence of God's Spirit. Is your life marked in these ways? For example, do you live in light of the absence of God's just condemnation? Is that how you live? Sadly, there are many Christians who continue to wrestle with a view of God that too frequently is characterized by His disappointment, His anger, His impatience, His rejection even. Or we find that we are regularly condemning ourselves. God's not condemned, but we're sitting here heaping condemnation on ourselves. Or we're we're clinging to and obsessing the condemning words of others in our lives. But please hear this, and let's please remind each other of this as well, regularly. The gospel has set us free. Amen? The gospel has set us free. Because of Jesus, we live in the glorious now of Romans 8.1. Amen? We live in this glorious now. And the absence of His condemnation is absolutely emancipating. It frees you. Who can bring a charge against God's elect? What can you say against me? If God is for me, who can stand against me? Who can stand against you if God is for you? Paul will go on to say near the end of Romans chapter 8. We're not talking about a life here free from sin or free from the need for repentance. No. But Jesus Christ took the condemnation upon Himself so that you 
might be free in him. Isn't that wonderful? The law of the spirit of life. We also should ask, am I living in the presence, the empowering presence of God's spirit? Some people may hear this idea of no condemnation and they, they might think that a life free of any heavenly condemnation is therefore a life of earthly indulgence. Just to do what I want. But it's actually exactly the opposite. And here's why. Paul has already explained it. The absence of God's condemnation means, in fact, reconciliation with that same God. The fact that we're not condemned means that we're reconciled to Him. And as Paul will go on to write, it's a life of knowing Him and loving Him that He saved us for. He says in Romans 8.15, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Wow. The spirit of life, the law of the spirit of life leads to you crying out, Abba, Father, to God. There is so much more we could say about the gospel-marked life, and hopefully every Sunday morning we do. We talk about it. We rehearse it with one another. We think carefully about what the gospel-marked life looks like. But my prayer here is that Romans 8, 1 through 4 would shape your daily prayers starting today or tomorrow. It would shape your daily praise to God, giving thanks to Him in light of this gift. It would shape your daily perspective, how you see yourself. I'm not going to condemn myself any longer because God does not condemn me. I don't need to condemn myself. I don't need to let the words of others have power over me. I have been set free in Christ Jesus. What does it mean to stand in His grace? It means forgiveness and freedom for you. It means His pardon and power for you to live a very different life. May your life, may my life be marked by the gospel this week. Amen? For our encouragement and as a witness to others of just how good this good news really is. Would you pray with me?